Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 69 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, has a history, like horses, hills, or hedges. I am loving the alliteration there, yep. Sam. Or for me, it's geese, fleece, and meese. That's a Scottish episode there. Or <laughs> smile. Do you mean mice? <laughs> I had to make it. I had to make it. I had to make it rhyme, okay. um, and I couldn't think of anything else that, that rhymed. Uh, or the smile, the pile, and the while. Do you like that? Very much so. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of clouds is all about navigation, cholera? And World War One, or that the history of dust is about America, post-depression era. It's about Karl Marx and the Industrial Revolution, and the Victorian self-made man. Wow! I can't wait for those. We should uh, do those. Um, the man sitting opposite me. I've been quite rude to you recently, so I'm going to be nice. The man sitting opposite me is the gardener of all of yesterday's roses. Oh! It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello. You're making me feel very guilty now because I've been so nice to you in all of these. I'm now going to be a bit cheeky. Um, and the man sitting opposite me is the historical gong farmer of the park. <laughs> oh, it's the famous historical adventurer. It's the wonderful, the wonderful, the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. And he's not a gong farmer at all. No, if you know, don't know what a gong farmer is, go and look it up. Yeah. Listen to our listen to our episode on toilets. Yeah. It's not good, basically. It's not good. <laughs> no. no. Um, this week, we are doing a history of invasion. Now, um, we're doing this from two kind of ways. I have a three-part series on the BBC at the moment called Invasion. Which is very good. Um, and thank you very much. Very and good. this episode has got, it's got kind of two strands to it. So on the one hand, I want to demonstrate that invasions have an unexpected history, which you'll, you'll understand completely if you actually watch the programmes um, available on the iPlayer. So the point there is that you can see invasions in terms of any kind of significant cultural dominance it might be a foodie invasion. We talked about that. It might be the farming invasion. We talked Ideological about that. invasion. Yeah, or mm. a, a language. You can, the whole language can change. So you can have all these different types of invasions. So you don't just have to think about it in terms of armies. I think that's the, the kind of the most the clear-cut important point about it. So there is an unexpected history to invasion. The second thing to talk about, I think, is to demonstrate, as we always do, that everything has a history. I want to talk about the history of my series. Ooh, nice. So it's actually... This is very much about my personal history of the experience of making the Invasion series. Ooh, nice. A start of a ten, then. Yeah. Uh, how did you come up with the idea for Invasions? Oh, well, that's easy. How did that happen? Yeah, that's easy. Um, he goes, goes left and goes for the book, The Safeguard of the Sea. By Nicholas Roger, who is my PhD supervisor. Um, and it's an amazing book. This is a naval history of Britain from yep. 660 
1649. You didn't know there was a naval history that went back that far. No. There is a very particular section which inspired me. I'm hmm. going to read it out to you. Oh, do, please. Is there anything about Vikings? Because I love Vikings. Um, there's a fair bit here. Good, good. Though everyone has heard of the Viking invasions, a facile idea is current among modern historians that after 1066, England was in some sense invasion-proof because of the surrounding sea. But nothing could be further from the truth. The sea certainly offered an obstacle of sorts, and it is easy to find examples of would-be invasions which were dispersed by gales, or, more often, which failed to surmount the considerable logistical difficulties of a seaborne attack. But... The sea is a highway as much as a barrier, and in the Middle Ages it was a much better highway than most of those on land. Compared to a respectable, I love this, a respectable mountain range, like the Alps, the Pyrenees, or even the Cheviots, the English Channel and the North Sea were trivial obstacles. English governments, this is the key sentence, ready? English governments have been overthrown by seaborne invasions at least nine times since the Norman Conquest. Yep. That's a really fabulous fact. And I think that at the time I was like, what are you talking about? To which should be added, uh, oh, there's an invasion of Scotland, at least seven other successful landings of major forces in England, which went on to campaign but did not overthrow the regime. Okay, Mm. so that's nine times since the Norman Conquest that um, significantly messed up English governments. And he's um, he's written them down, listed them here. Which are quite, it's actually worth going through them. Um, but that was the paragraph that made me want to do something on the history of invasions. Mm. And then I, so I wanted to demonstrate there were lots that no one knew anything about. Mm. Um, but I also wanted to, to explore the idea that um, it doesn't have to be about armies, it doesn't have to be about overthrowing governments. Yep. So this, yep. this very much takes a stance that an invasion is about overthrowing governments. Mm. And, and I don't. And um, mine was much broader than that. But this is essentially what inspired me. Mm. Um, it's, it, there was a Dan Crookshank series in 2001. And what he did was by, uh, he looked at architecture, essentially. I'm just having a look at here. Uh, so there are two things. One was called Fortress Britain. Um, Crookshank visits the sites of some little-known invasion attempts. Episode two, The Bogeyman is Coming, which is a great name for it. He looks at Britain's response to the threat of French invasion. And then uh, Battle for Britain examines how Britain reinvented itself um, as a fortified encampment under the threat of German invasion. Um, it, it does raise a really interesting thing on the fear of invasion, yeah. which I wanted to... Failed invasion. Yeah, which I wanted to look at. As well. And also I've done a lot of work on, on the Armada. Yes. And one of the, the the big facts about the Armada that I love is that okay the, the Armada didn't succeed, but then there were two subsequent ones in in the in the fifteen nineties yep. which were better equipped, better planned, and far more likely to far more likely to succeed. But for various but reasons, they, they failed. Yeah, um, and no one really knows about those. Or certainly, they're not they're not very well known. And also, there was an amazing one in seventeen seventy nine during the American Revolution where a huge French and Spanish fleet. Um, to three times the size of the Armada tips up at Plymouth and the Royal Navy is nowhere nowhere in sight. So there's, there is an amazing history there, which if you look at it, you can, you can poke holes in all sorts of things about British naval superiority. You can poke holes in things about um, what invasion actually means to the people that experience it, whether it's archaeologically visible and essentially what you mean by invasion. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. What I'd like to do, actually, is just very briefly go through these nine invasions since the Norman Conquest, um, just to see how many of them you might know. Okay. Or, okay. or, or I no. might know. Um, 11.30... Te- this is a test. It, it is a test, live, live on radio. 11.39. 
no, no, no. I'm not playing. I'm not playing this game. But you know that that was Empress Matilda, who's yes. the daughter of yes, Henry yes, the yes. First. Yes. And yeah. you know about the uh, Civil War. Yes. Known as the Anarchy. Yes. You do, of course. Yes, of course. Okay, so we've got a problem here. There is a civil war between Matilda, who is a daughter of Henry I, and Stephen of Blois. Um, Stephen eventually kind of fights off Matilda's uh, claim to the throne. She nearly gets crowned, but it all goes a bit wrong. Her, her eldest son eventually becomes Henry II. 1153, Henry of Anjou lands in England, and Stephen recognised Henry as his heir. So that's after that. Then 1326, you've got Isabella and Mortimer. Isabella is the wife of Edward II, but turns against him, and his son is proclaimed um, Edward III. Then you've got Richard II, who is deposed in 1399, where Bolingbroke lands. Uh, 1460, you've got Warwick, and you've got Richard Neville, so you've got Wars of the Roses. 1470 again, 1471, more Wars of the Roses stuff, another invasion. 1485? Uh, the Tudors. Tudors, Henry VII, VII. And then 1688. So yeah, there's, yeah. there's a wonderful list of them there. And there are lots of... So these aren't, these aren't necessarily invasions of peoples. These are people who've been living in exile... Kind of coming who have landed, across, who've with, landed with an army with an army and who have taken power uh, yeah, over the yeah, country yeah, yeah. Um, so that, I suppose that was the that was the real inspiration inspiration behind not as exciting it. as the Vikings not as exciting as, as, as Viking, what, Viking invasion what do you like about the Vikings I don't know I was always obsessed with the Vikings I, I read Anglo-Saxon history at Oxford in my first term and got obsessed with Vikings and then and then taught the Vikings when I was uh, teaching over in America. And I think they are, they've always just fascinated me. And partly because we just, we know so little about them, so little survives. You know, there's very little sort of um, written evidence from that period produced by them. A lot of the evidence is much later um, from the sort of, you know, the the, the Icelandic sagas. Um, and so we have to go from you know, fairly sketchy sort of archaeological evidence and they're often seen, they are an invading force, but they're seen from the perspective of those who they are invading. Yeah. Um, you know, so they crop up in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, you know, the the monasteries that they're sacking. Woo, it's woo, <laughs> getting terrified. I mean, I think historians have decided, you know, what they think the Vikings are. But I think that, you know, there is a there's a debate about the invention of the Vikings. Are they these sort of marauding armies that come across or are they this sort of elite group of, you know, landed warrior yeah. warriors who come across and are able to come over in small number? And we know we can we can measure that kind of the number from the number of ships sighted and the number of people that you'd fit in a ship and archaeological evidence of forts and i think they are they they are an elite force that are able to take over and i think this is important to the history of invasions of england one of the reasons why england is so prone to invasion is because it is so highly centralized and that people can basically come in and this is this is back to you know your supervisor's point about taking over government is that basically you can come in and because everything is so highly centralised, everything is built around particular administrative bureaucratic areas. You come in and as, an, as a smaller force, you just knock knock out those, take those over, and suddenly you're in control of that of the sort of machinery that that runs yeah. the country. And I think that, in in a sense, is what the Vikings are about. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And they don't have horns on their helmets. That's the other thing. Don't you dare say that in my show. <laughs> of course they have horns in them. They had very elaborate antlers, actually. They, basically, the, the, you know, the people who drew Viking hats, they've underdone it. They've underdone, they've underdone it. it, so they have enormous horns. Don't say that on my show. <laughs> <laughs> I like the... Um, Interestingly, one of the things we did with with the program is, is if you make the BBC, you have the access, you have access to the entire BBC archive, which is a truly, truly wonderful oh, thing. Oh, I bet so it is. Um, this show in particular, more than any of the other series I've done, has some really fabulous fifties, sixties, seventies costume dramas where where the BBC has decided to honour a particular period or a particular story with um with a a kind of Wolf Hall style costume drama. And um, they're brilliant because they they really reflect in a very visual kind of fundamental way, much more clearly, I think, than you do by by reading a book from the 50s or 60s. It's so short and so sharp. And like, wow, this is genuinely what these people thought at the time about the Vikings. Mm. Um, It it really helps you understand that that, that our knowledge of anything essentially massively changes from time to time and, and the depiction of the Vikings is is particularly extraordinary. But they didn't have antlers, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't no. have antlers. No. <laughs> I, li- I really li- I would like them to have had antlers very much. Um, so the, the, let's just talk a bit about the come back to our idea of the unexpected history. Everything has a history. So even something as new as this series, so episode yep. two was out on yesterday, yep. has a history. And yep. that's my personal history and personal experience of making that series over the summer which was good so i mean it's 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 not all about for me it's not all about knowledge and it's not all about history it's about much more personal things it's to do with the sort of the joy or the or the anger or the difficulty of the people I've, i i i had to deal with in the making of the program um i don't mean that specifically to this one that everyone was lovely but it's to do with the, the human relationships that you have uh, the experience of all the places you go i went to largs the coastal town to the west of Scotland, west of oh, Glasgow nice. for the first time. An amazing place. Loved it. Nice. And for me, the, the, the history of the programme actually comes wrapped up with a huge degree of emotion because it encapsulates six, seven months of my working life. Yeah. During which period you were also writing a book. I was also writing a knackered. Um, also writing a book <laughs> a as well. Year. Yeah, so yes. it's, it's quite odd when you actually watch it on telly because everyone is getting a kind of a... Everyone who watches it knows nothing about it at all. Yes. Or as I know, yes. all about it. Yes. And it's wrapped up with a whole lot of extra kind of the material of, of living in the modern world. And so it's, it's, it looks at invasion from the sort of earliest times of sort of prehistory yeah. through to the, Beyond, yeah, the uh, modern day. Second world, well, yeah. yeah, Brexit, essentially. Yeah. And the Armada. You were yeah. keen on the Armada. Always keen on the Armada. We should do a special uh, unexpected history of the Armada. As a one-off. Well, it's one of the things we're going to do next. Yes. Isn't it? So, so what we've yeah. done in the last year is talk about unexpected historical subjects, like the itch or the lean or the bubble or blood or whatever. Yeah. But we've also realised that we can do unexpected histories of well-known subjects. Yeah. So we could do something like the Tudors or, or the Henry Armada, the Eighth or Henry, Hen- the Henry the Eighth. Unexpected history the of unexpected the history of Henry the Eighth is about the signature, the toilet, mm-hmm. ducks. Ducks, ducks, duckies, uh, Anne Boleyn's duckies. Shoes. Um, shoes, oh, gloves, yep. gloves, chairs. Uh-huh. I mean, it endless, uh-huh. endless. Yeah. Um, Toys. Very good. So, yeah, the I thought we'd, we'd talk a bit about... The Armada is about hair. <laughs> it's still going on. Yeah, it is. Post. We are going to do that. Lies, uh-huh. propaganda. Yeah. 
Wax. Right, we'll do this. We'll do this. We're going to write the book. Um, Wind. I am going to now, though, talk about the process of making a TV programme. Oh, good. How about that? Oh, do. So you come up with the idea. We've we've covered that. Um, And then you... What do you do next? Hope it gets commissioned. Right. Which is quite a convoluted process. And how do you go about doing that? Um, Do people approach you? Do you approach them? Do you have an agent? Bit of a mixture. Right. Bit of a mixture. It's happened differently pretty much every time. I do have an agent. Um, yes. a TV agent, somebody who specialises in TV. And, and so TV agents are, are well-connected. They they can put you in front of people who make TV programmes, either the, the companies who make the programme or the people who, who commission them. Yep. Um, this was commissioned by the History Commissioner of the BBC, um, and it was produced by Pacific Key, BBC Scotland. Right. Because um, the BBC is now split up, so BBC Scotland is like an independent production company. Um, they... So all Sam, we, you've done some quite fun series recently, weapons and castles and shipwrecks and all the outlaws and stuff. Have you got any ideas for the next ones? So we came up with three. Uh, invasions was one of them, and Invasions was the one they went for. Um, yep. So we've got another couple up our sleeves. But when, when you hear it's all going to go ahead, then it's a matter of sitting down. I'd sit down with a director. So there are three episodes, and usually each episode is directed by a different person. Mm. Um, so you come, you get together. You, I, I tend to say I'm, I'm interested. Did you in, have a favourite director? In these, I, I couldn't possibly say that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you sit down, and I, and I'd say I'd like to do invasion. Okay, we're doing invasions. These are the, this is the theme I would like to do, and I, we've already discussed that. So there'll be unexpected types of invasions, and also yeah. lots of no one knows anything about. So it, it is actually the first series I've done, which is which has got histories of the unexpected. Actually, really kind of bleeding through it. Good. It's very much part of part it, of what we've done. Anyway, um, I will take my royalty cut. <laughs> <laughs> the director, yes, then writes the script. So this is now. What, inter- now, what do you think of that? This is an interesting thing. Well, yes. some some far fewer than you suspect presenters actually write their own scripts. Yeah. Um, so I didn't. You, you can comment on it and then you can change yeah, it. That's yeah. absolutely fine. But someone else essentially writes it. So you can say, I want you to do these stories and this is the this is the broad narrative of it. I want people to re- watch this programme and realise there are m- many more invasions than they suspect. That's that's your bottom line. Yeah. And I also want them to think that you can in- there could be invasions which isn't just about people changing the government. That's yeah. my other bottom line. Yeah. Kind of do whatever you want after that. So someone else writes a script. I then get the script. I can then change it. I put things in my own language. Yeah. We decide what pieces of what 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 sections are going to be spoken to camera, known as a piece to camera, mm. and uh, which would be VO. Oh, you which have is a, you voiceover. have a you have a, a say about that mm. about working all that through. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you get the script and you say I much prefer that to be voiceover right. rather than piece of camera, or, the, or or let's change this piece to camera. Mm. So it's it's very much me, yeah. but it is actually written by someone else. Right. And then you you do that you do the actual filming itself. These BBC Four productions I've done, they're done with a very small budget and a very small team and a very limited amount of time. Right. So filming very long days. Right. Uh, 14, 15 hours. I did a couple of seventeen-hour days. Um, lots, lot of tra- of, lots, lots of coffee. Lots of travelling, lots of coffee, lots of filming. Then you travel somewhere else. So it's properly full on Goodness when me. you're doing it. And, you know, you, you, you arrive there... Um, you do a few pieces of camera, a few walking around shots, which is quite relaxing. And you just say, I'm going to walk over there. Say, I'm going to sit on that gravestone. And then you do interviews, which I thought we'd talk a bit about, because you've been interviewed, haven't you? Yeah, For lots, several TV lots, things. Why lots. don't you talk about the experience of that? I hated it at first. Yeah. Absolutely hated it. Me too. It. I, I loathed it, it. I found it really difficult to, to get to, you know, to feel comfortable in front of a camera. And in fact, now I actually really like it. Yeah. I've worked with some really good people you know, some some really good directors who can really get good stuff 
out of you and some you know really good presenters uh, Lucy Worsley uh, was great uh, to work with mm-hmm. uh, and she she dusted my nose <laughs> <laughs> really? she brought out she brought out this little this little before well, we Liz. before we were doing um, before <laughs> we were doing before we were about to film she brought out this little thing from her bag and she said um um, I normally give this to um, to the bald gentleman that I that I work with uh, for their heads, and um, maybe you could use it on your nose, <laughs> which is another way of saying you have a sweaty, shiny nose, Professor Daybell. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. (laughs) <laughs> Very good, but I, I yeah, it's difficult but... because the, the, the fundamental problem is that the director and the presenter go there knowing what they want you to say because they've already written the script. Yeah, uh, and they can't allow the script to go off in a different direction. No, because no. everything's already set up. So you're going somewhere tomorrow to yep. talk to someone else, and that is all set up because you're expecting yes. this person to say this thing. They yes. will have spoken to you on the phone to get yes. a sense of what you might say. <laughs> But there's, a, there's also the, the, a, a very significant um, understanding that the director and the presenter can't tell the person they're interviewing, so I'm really sorry. I know. Could you just please say the sentence? And I know. there's a huge it, uncertainty it is the there. Mo- it is the most frustrating thing yeah. in that you end up sort of, you're filmed for about three hours and you've, you know, you've given a sort of a masterwork and then most of it ends up on the cutting room floor. 90, and what, 90% And what they're yeah. after is that 20-second soundbite that gets... Four-second soundbite. Yeah. I worked with someone who was really funny. Uh, no names, and I'm even going to change the subject. Okay, so I'm going to invent the subject. The subject is the, just invented the Armada. Let's say it's the Armada. Yeah. It wasn't the Armada, but let's say it's the Armada. And, and we, needed the, we needed the person we are interviewing to say um, something along the lines of, the Armada never happened, or you know, whatever. Yes, it was like yeah, we yeah. basically needed one line, and we knew that they were happy saying that. We wanted to say that. We'd already said that. <laughs> we kept saying, the director kept saying, "It'd be just really great if you could say something along the lines of the, the Armada, Armada never, never happened." happened. And then and they and he said, "Oh, absolutely fine." Yeah, but they did. But they did it in a forty-five-minute mini lecture every time. And I was like, "How was that?" Well, no, we, well, we actually mean, can you say that actual line? And then we can go. We can all go and have a tea, have a cup of tea. 
very difficult. Um, but the, the basic problem there is that the person you're interviewing doesn't know no, exactly what you want them to say and you can't tell them to say it. And also academics in particular, when they're the people being interviewed, yeah. feel very uncomfortable yeah. about saying things in a soundbitey way. Oh, I mean, there are certain people oh. who are really who are really at ease yeah. with it, but others feel really... And there are certain things I, that I... I can't do it. I absolutely can't bear it. No, I, there are certain things that I would not... Certain shows, there are certain things that I would not say. Yeah. And there are certain things that I am really unhappy about yeah. with the whole framework of how something is is put together, that it's presented to an audience in a particular way mm. because they want to tell a particular story. Yeah. But in doing that, they get it all wrong. Yes, no, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's and, happened several times and on things that I've made because yeah. I then don't have control over the editing process. So yeah. even though you think everything is going all right, then it's actually cut in a different way. And you're like, what? And all of the subtlety, the, the idea might be the same, yeah. but all of the subtlety, all of the slight, the kind of, the you know, the sort of the... The nuance. The, the nuance yeah. here and there. And the, you're being very careful with language because I'm a professional historian. Yeah. And an academic, and I've got a reputation. Suddenly, it's gone. Yeah. Because the TV company is much more interested in making something which is yep. hard-edged, which might provoke debate. The Armada didn't happen. <laughs> like the Armada didn't happen. You, do you see what I mean? And so there is a there is a there's a there's a really interesting balance it's there. Really, and, it's really, and everyone has to find their way through it with every program that you make. It's really funny. I was on a, a show recently about um, it was basically about the Cecils and about spy networks and I was just putting the girls to bed and my wife came upstairs and she said James James I've just heard you on BBC One on the trailer and my voice was on the trailer because I had said something about um well of course Elizabeth was Elizabeth the first was fair game to be assassinated <laughs> so that was the line that they took yeah. and it was all over the trailer just because it was sort of you know Sound bitey. Yeah. I mean, it's entirely true. Yeah. Well, you're, um, you're happy with it. I mean, yes. I mean, I'm you, entirely, you can get it right. I'm entirely you can, happy you with can, that. Absolutely. Can but it's get a it right. learning. It's a learning process. Yeah. And I, I think also the the more experienced you are as an academic, the yeah. more happy you are to be boxed in. I think because you can actually defend it. You can say. Yes. Right. But I think when you're a younger academic, and a lot of TV companies want to interview younger academics because they want younger faces on. Essentially, I, they yeah. want yeah, which yeah. is which is a really interesting thing, which we, we should talk about as well as who you actually get to be on your program. Yes, and they are much less interested in being boxed in because they, they there's a whole academic reputation going on here and as an academic you're expected to, to appear on telly but at the same time you can't just go around saying sweeping generalisation so there's a difference there, between a sweeping generalisation no. or a hard-edged spiky comment deliberately yep. designed to provoke there, debate there, there was a show that I was asked to I'd done some filming with a really great director and he liked what I did and he said right I would like you for this when I found out what it was about, I showed it to a friend, and he just said, "You have to say no to that." Yeah, you know, you are a you are a really serious scholar. You can't be playing with no. nonsense like that. Yeah, I mean that's the difficult, and that's that's one of the, the true beauties of being able to make things for BBC Four. Yes, because it's um, Yo, yes, you can you can really think, and you can pre you can present an argument, yeah, and you can do really exciting things with history, which is far less possible with other channels where they want to go over the same stories again and again and again in a, in a kind of slightly dramatic way, I suppose. Nazi Tudor cows. Nazi Tudor cows treasure. Yeah, sharks. Yeah, yeah, sharks. For example, dinosaurs. Yeah, but you know that has a history. So so and also this whole 
discussion we're having about academics being interviewed for TV history has a history. So if you think about, um, even going back to David Starkey, you know, the sort of 80s, 90s TV history, often it was a completely straight monologue. No one ever smiled. No one ever had any fun. It was all very serious because history is very serious. And um, you can't possibly be shown to be having fun if you're presenting history on BBC. You know. yeah, he and it was like that for years. And it, and it was, and it, but it's also personality-driven, isn't it, as yeah. well? He and Sharma. That it was about... It was the David Starkey's Tudors. Yeah. David Starkey's Henry VIII. And yeah. A brilliant, brilliant presenter. I mean, yeah. ca- I mean, absolutely captivating. And with Starkey, you know, he's presenting about the Tudors, but where he's one of the world experts on it. And I think... Yeah. I suppose it comes from... Uh, it comes from a sort of an AJ. We talked about AJP Taylor in one of our episodes uh, that we've recorded. It comes from that kind of, um, you know, tradition yep. uh, of sort of personality-led presenting. Yeah. Where do you see yourself fitting in that yeah. sort of, in that continuum of sort of um, history presenters? Don't know. Not sure. I want to answer that. No, I mean it's diff. It's it is difficult. It's a difficult one. Yeah. I think as long as you can demonstrate that I don't I, I, actually I mean, I'd, I'd remove myself from it com- entirely. I think as long as you as long as TV history moves forward by having very creative history shows that reflect the creativity of modern history, mm. then I'm happy. Mm. That's good. And as long as TV history goes forward with historians being human and yep. having a sense yep. of humour yep. and being personable and nice. Yep. That's infinitely better because it's more entertaining. But you know, the, the bottom line is, is you're there for entertainment. Yeah, it is an yep. enter- It is a media for entertainment. Okay, yep. yes, education, but yep. you, you don't have to have one and not the other no. at all. I no. mean, you really, really no. don't. Um, so it winds some people up massively. I mean, the amount of stuff I get on on Twitter and social media for having fun. Really? Yeah. People don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, not interested in that. This is history. You've got to be, you've got to be serious. This is, you're talking about the invasions of the British Isle. I know I am, and I can do that with a smile on my face. Yeah. Why can't I? Why could I possibly, you know, it's, it's... But I suppose you're in the public eye and people feel that they can, you know, you're on Twitter, you're on email. They feel that they have the right to be able to get in touch. And I think, like, just sort of in the future, yeah, I, I would like to... I'm very conscious of all of these brilliant historians in universities and outside universities, but doing wonderful, wonderful new research and showing that we can think about the past and the present in different ways and I want that to come across onto telly. Brilliant. That's that's what I think is a massive tick for me and I also want want um yeah, I like presenters to be as human as possible. In the way that everyone is in every other yeah. form of TV. I mean even maybe to, to a less extent politics. Could you think of a political newscaster who is lighthearted? Because John the- Humphreys Actually, John Humphreys has a John Humphreys has a John Humphreys has a Evan Day Evan Davies yeah that whole crowd Jim Nockerty yeah. there's a, there's a there's a real sort of sense of you know but I think they they have that kind of gravitas and stature and confidence to be able to commentate and in some sense that's a you know Radio 4's Today program is a it's less a kind of a news reporting program and more a kind of like meta commentary yeah. On it, and I think you know they they do get some terrific people on. Yeah. On no, they're true. They they, they, they are they are absolutely excellent. Paxman, Paxman, you know, great personality and kind of did it with humor. I mean, there was a lot of humor in what he did, as well as being often quite aggressive. Yeah. Uh, and probing historian. Well, in which case, I think, I think sorry, my, sorry, news presenter. Yeah, but my point stands though that it's it is less 
I mean, it's great nowadays. Yeah. But it, it, it could be could be a lot better. But it was terrible yeah. ten years ago. And I think the whole history on TV is, yeah. is is hugely behind the times in this, and it needs to be given a bit of a kick up the bum. I like Charmer. Yep. I thought his history of Britain was amazing, amazing mm. sort of. And there's there's a sort of there's a sort of you know there's a, a twinkle twinkle in his eye. He would wear his leather jacket. Yeah. And all that. And all that. And all that. Well, there we go. I think we should we should come to an end there. What have we done? We've done a brief history of TV history. Yes. And a brief history of my TV specific the invasions invasions series. And we've done a little very brief thing on all the invasions between 1066 and 1688. Uh, and the we've talked about. Um, uh, the Vikings, which was basically all I wanted to talk about, <laughs> and the Armada, which you, and the Armada, yeah. so, um, uh, which which is all about beards yeah. and the post and letters. Yeah, but if you tore this apart, though, we've suddenly un- uncovered all sorts of stuff, all sorts of different topics of history. Yes, I think that's it. The history we've of TV presenting, the history of it being interviewed on TV, public history, your personal history of oh, public history. Public history. Well, yeah, which is what academics call. Try and explain what public history is, because I've talked to a couple of people; they have no idea what it is. It's like only historians and history departments actually know what public history is or means, and they disagree with each other. Yeah, it means it means different things. I mean, there are various sort of definitions of what public history is. I mean, I think it's different from academic history in that what you are trying to do is to communicate. Well, the definition that comes out of universities is that basically public history is academic historians having a public shop window for their research, so they're reaching a wider audience. The flip side of that is about ownership of history by the public. So it's like grassroots history Mm. that's coming up that is part of people's everyday life. Yeah. That is important, and I think what what's what's very difficult about this is that there's often a tension between um, between the academics who see themselves as the gatekeepers of history, and then people, mm. you know, the the public who actually have a right to the, the history. So there's a debate about whose history is it anyway. Right. Okay. I mean, in this country, in this country, it's it's a pretty low level debate. In certain countries, like Australia, for example, you know, you talk about the history wars, and particularly where you're talking about indigenous peoples, you know, the importance that history, that early history has for them, or uh, the United States and, and Native Americans and, and, and that kind of public history. So, I mean, it's, fasc- it's fascinating. I teach a whole module uh, on our MA programme mm-hmm. at Plymouth, on public history. Um, And I'm now increasingly seeing, through this podcast and everything that we're doing, seeing myself much more as a public historian. Okay. I think I I see us and what we do as public history. Yeah. You know, you are a... No, we very specifically do that, particularly in our book. Yes. So what we do with our our book, Histories of the Unexpected, was we did very in-depth, detailed reading of scholarly articles about clever stuff, and then synthesised it into a chapter on the history of clouds or whatever it might be, which brings that very academic, like a a couple of brilliantly academic articles on the history of clouds in the 18th century or whatever, to to a very wide public by cooking it up in a different way. And what we do with the podcast is I think we popularise history. You know, we're both academics and we both have that sort of... And I write academic stuff that goes in for... Uh, the Research Excellence Framework Exercise in 2021. How could I forget that? You know, so there's that part of my life where I write these sort of very scholarly things, but at the same time, there's a part of me that wants to and increasingly loves communicating to a much bigger audience. Yeah. And I think that... So there's your definition of, of public history. It From 
the point of view of the academic, it's about it's about popularizing history and reaching out to people and communicating. It's also about communities having their own history. Then it's also about museums. Yeah. You know, and heritage. In a sense, history is all around us. And that I think that's the that's the thing. It's not this sort of academic commodity that is the property of this sort of ivory towered custodians. It is there. We cannot escape it. Mm. History is everywhere. You walk down a street and it is filled with history. Mm. You go out into the landscape, the countryside, and it is just steeped in, in history. And so I suppose that, in a sense, is what public history is all about. Yeah. Very good. Well, we've, we seem to have covered the history of history. We do. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Um, thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Do um, have a look at uh, my Invasions programme. It'll be on the iPlayer. Um, very good. Uh, have I, I said that? Yeah, my, my, my favourite bits are about the fear of invasion and space invasion, because it, it all goes... Oh, space It's invaders. so wonderful. You say, you'll make a history programme. I said, yeah, it's all going to be about spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Spaceships and fear. Yeah, fantastic. You know, it's a really good... Thing. I'm very proud of that. I, it's particularly good. And everyone says, oh, invasion will all be about the Norman Conquest and fighting. I said, no, it's not. It's about, it's about uh, spaceships and farming. What? <laughs> so do please look at it. Uh, get in touch if it it's annoys, about gloves. Get it in touch if it annoys you. It seems to have annoyed, annoyed a lot of people. Why did you not do that invasion? Because I spent my time talking about spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very, very, very pleased that I've done that. Um, so thank you very much um, for listening to this podcast, and we'll be back soon. Don't know what, what's on the list. What's on our next? What's list? on the list? We are going to do hats and recipes, and we have to sit down and book in some dates and think of some more things to think about over the Christmas period. Okay. All right. Good. Hats and recipes. Let's do dogs as well. I think um, dogs. My, my dogs just don't okay. know. Hello, Memo. We'll uh, do dogs. We'll, we'll do dogs. Particularly, okay. particularly Spangers. Brilliant. Bye. 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 Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.